I have some time to redeem. Uh, you remember the weekend that I went to Tennessee and we didn't have service? I'm going to get some of the time from there. <laughs> we'll be redeeming until I recover all the time that we lost. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, I don't know how much strength the Lord will give me for how long. Time that I used to have way much more strength to talk. That I could talk from now until 7 p.m. I mean, seriously, literally, just talk, just be teaching. Whilst I have the strength, hear what the Lord has to teach you through what he has given me. Because you don't know where you're going to be tomorrow, next week, next year, five years from now, and what kind of circumstances you'll be. You need to have some sure foundation uh, in your understanding of the God of the Bible and the gospel of God. So I, I take it seriously, and I prepare seriously. Okay? With that, let's go before the Lord in prayer, and then we can dive in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this morning. Our Lord, we praise your name and say, Hallowed is thy name, and thy kingdom come. May your Son, Jesus Christ, come and establish his kingdom. May he call all his people from all the four corners of the earth. Lord, I pray that his gospel will go forth, for his word never returns void. In spite of the weaknesses of the vessels, Lord, we know that you are calling your people. And Lord, now I seek your direction, I seek your grace, that I may bring forth the message that you have given me, that your people may hear. Give them the eyes, the ears, and the heart to hear spiritual things. Lord, that they may grow by it, that they may be strengthened in grace and truth. We know, Lord, that the subject matter that you have given us is a difficult one for many to handle, but we'll go as far as the scriptures have given us to go. And Lord, may you grant us understanding. We praise your name, we glorify you, and we pray. Uh, the doctrine that we are going to be teaching today is part of what I've been calling the housekeeping teaching, the teaching that grounds us in our theology so that anybody who comes to us will not have any other understanding of what we teach, preach, and believe other than that God is sovereign. God is so sovereign that the word sovereign is not enough to describe him. Sovereignty of the kind that God has has no boundaries. It has no boundaries. You can't put a fence around the sovereignty of deity. It reaches everything. It reaches everything. Because everything is contained in him. Everything in the universe and beyond the universe 
is contained by him. You see, the universe has boundaries, but God has no boundaries. And the Bible is very clear that God is sovereign. And we want to bring the scriptural teaching on the sovereignty of God and human responsibility because I think a lot of people, even well-meaning people, when they say God is sovereign, they are not really saying God is sovereign. Because when you talk about a sovereign God and then say, but, you are not talking about a sovereign God anymore. He is just sovereign. Okay. So, the Bible is very clear that God is sovereign. And by sovereign, I mean that he has decreed everything that comes to pass. And he controls and micromanages every detail of anything and everything in the universe so that there's nothing that happens that is outside his determination. Absolutely nothing that happens that is outside his determination. God is presented in the scriptures as being sovereign in First Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12. And here it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. God exercises his sovereignty in actively ordaining everything. God does not passively ordain anything. You can't passively ordain anything. And God cannot permit he does not permit anything. He has ordained everything that comes to pass. To say God permits something is to say he is now making an evaluation to see, oh, I didn't realize that Robert was going to do that. Maybe I can take advantage of that and bring something good out of it. That's the thinking of men, but that can't be true. God exercises his sovereignty in actively ordaining everything that comes to pass. Job 12, verse 6 to 10. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Ephesians 1.11 For we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. The Lord is sovereign over all matters of chance, for there is nothing called chance with respect to God. In Proverbs 16, verse 33, the Lord records for us that 
the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The Lord is sovereign over the wicked actions of men. The wicked actions of men. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Exodus 4.21 And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. The Lord is sovereign over the actions of evil spirits. There is no spirit, whether it is holy or evil, that is outside 100% control by the Lord. First Samuel 16, verses 14 to 16. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from the Lord is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Look at the origin of the evil spirit. It's coming from the Lord. The Lord is sovereign over the good actions of man. Philippians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The actions of good angels. Psalm 103, 20 and 21. Bless the Lord, all you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. The actions of animals. Numbers twenty-two, twenty-eight. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And the operation of all creation. Psalm 104, 19 and 20. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about. And the one area where men stumble. Men will say, I agree with everything that you have said. Except for God's control over the evil spirits. And the control of men. Listen to the word of the Lord. Proverbs 21 and 1. The king's heart is like channels of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wishes. And this is not saying God controls kings only. It's saying he controls all men. Kings as the ones who are the highest of men in power. And God says, I control them. Their hearts are in my hands. And connected with this is wherever the sovereignty, the true sovereignty of God is taught in the Bible, man is not permitted to question him. It's all over the Bible. Every time the true sovereignty of God is taught in the Bible, man is not permitted to question him. As we heard from what Brother Guido was reading, who is this who darkens 
counsel with words without wisdom. And of course, the Lord gives all these questions to Job, asking him, do you do this job? If you have to ask me about anything, I'm going to ask you about some basic things here, Job. And the Lord says in Isaiah 29, 16, Surely if things turned around, shall the potter be esteemed as the clay. For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me. Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Job 33, 12 and 13. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, him, saying he will answer none of men's words? Indeed, the Lord does not answer men's words. And connected with this teaching, we see all the time that men fail to understand God's sovereignty over the very existence of sin. Men will agree with you that men are sinners, but they will not agree with you with respect to the origin of sin. If sin exists as a thing, whatever it is, it only exists because God decreed it. Sin does not show up from nothing unless the Lord decreed it to be there. And unless the Lord had purpose with it. And the Lord has purpose with decreeing sin because through sin, he is displaying the majesty of his glory. So in the light of this knowledge of God's sovereignty, we want to glean some understanding of God's ways and how it is applied with respect to human responsibility. People are ignorant of the Bible, period. And yet, they are not short of opinions. This is man's presumption. When people assume that if God is sovereign, then humans cannot and should not be made morally responsible. Secondly, they assume that if God is sovereign and makes them responsible, it implies that they have the ability to do whatever God commands them, hence the notion of free will. Men have free will, otherwise God would not be asking us to do the things that we would not be able to do. That's a lie. That's not true. But free will ignores the biblical teaching of the fall, it ignores the fact that the will of man is not free. Even then, when we talk about freedom, we have to be free from something or someone. You can't just be free. What are you free from? Who are you free from? So what is man free from? He or she is not free from sin. And not free from the devil. And if you are like me, and you live in America, you are certainly not free from debt. And man is not free from God. Man is not free. There's nothing that is free from God. 
the human will is in bondage to sin, and therefore it is a slave to sin. A slave cannot be free because by the very nature of being a slave, you are in bondage. So because we are not free, we can only act according to the confines of the nature that we have been given as sinful beings. A lion does not eat a salad for lunch or dinner. You never see a lion having spinach for lunch. A lion has to take a buffalo down. Always. It has to take some antelope down. Because that's what lions do. They only eat meat. That's what is in accordance with their nature. If one day you go to the zoo and you see them feeding a salad with ranch dressing to a lion, then you know something wrong has happened. Something has happened to that lion. This is the reason why people do not have skunks as pets. People have dogs. They have cats as pets. But I have not yet to hear anybody who has a skunk in their house as a pet. Why? Because the nature of the skunk is not agreeable with you. With respect to you and the skunk, you feel like you are holy. Unless the skunk has been deglanded, the skunk has to be deglanded so that it may stop its sinful ways. And unless the nature of the skunk has been changed, it shall remain a skunk. And unless men have their nature changed, they shall remain slaves to sin. So then, if men are not free, why does God make us responsible? The simple answer to that is God makes men responsible for their sin because he is God. <laughs> yep. I have my kids to wash and clean because I am the sovereign of the house. So God makes us responsible for things that we are not able to do because he is God. And responsibility, as I said, does not imply that you have ability to do the things that God is asking you to do. It comes to us because we are moral agents. We are moral agents. And people say sinners are free. They are free to do things according to their nature. I don't even agree with that statement. I think the proper understanding has to be we feel like we are free when we make the things that we the decisions that we make. We feel like you are free when you make the decisions that you make. But you are never free. You are bound to sin, you are not free. You have influences of the devil, you are not free, and God is controlling you from behind the scenes, you are not free. 
But when you make the decisions, it feels like you are free. A few weeks back, coming back from Tennessee, Sister Ella and I got off the exit to get some gas. We didn't need to get gas at that exit. We could have had, could have driven all the way past Cincinnati, but we're still in Kentucky. But the Lord pushed us through Tawanda, who was starting to get very uncontrollable, to exit at the exit that we exited. And it turned out that there was a man there who was going to lock his car keys in his van with his family and couldn't get them out. And he had been talking to everybody coming at the gas station and nobody seemed to have anything that he could use or was willing to help him. And then he came to me and I had the thing that he needed. And I helped him to open, ply open the door and he got his keys. Now that's sovereignty. Now if you look at it, it's happening with, through my son who is not even aware of it. Okay? And you think, well, he is just acting according to his nature. But there's more that is happening beyond his nature. Someone is driving things behind the scenes. So the human will is bound by sin and is forever bent away from righteousness. Is forever bent away from righteousness. And because we are bound by sin, when we make our decisions, they are only mediated and interpreted by that nature. Only by that nature. Being a sinner is a nature of being that has gone deeper than man would acknowledge. And you shall remain a sinner even if you don't go outside of this room. And you don't even talk to nobody. Just sitting on your couch until you turn 120 years, you shall always be a sinner. Here's Apostle Paul in Romans 7 when he discovered the principle of sin. That sin is more than what you do. Sin is more than what you do you do the things that you do because you are a sinner. Romans 7, 21, and 20, uh, 21 to 23. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Apostle Paul says, even after being born again, he finds himself in captivity to the law of sin. He finds himself in captivity to the law of sin, which is in his members. Even though he desires. Now he has desires to do good, according to the inward man, but he still finds himself being bound to this principle that he can't shake off. And this discovery is only for those who have been born again. 
this discovery of the inward man and having the delight according to the inward man and seeing the struggle with sin is only an experience of those who are born again. Because by nature, you don't have that kind of discovery. You enjoy the principle of sin. It's only when a new principle of life in Christ through being born again, through regeneration, that you begin to feel the struggle. The ones that are dead in trespasses and sins cannot make this discovery. They cannot. But there's even a greater reason why God caused men to be captives to sin and makes them responsible. You see, a lot of people cannot talk like this. They cannot talk like this. How can you say God caused men to be sinful? Or it's men who became sinful by himself because he was disobedient in the garden. That's true. But there's more. (laughs) There's more. This did not happen by accident. You see, salvation is not a lotto ticket. Salvation is a purpose of God. God has a purpose in Christ from the foundation of the world to display his glory in the salvation of sinners. So that anybody and anyone who ever comes to be in the presence of God in all of eternity can only see that it came by God's grace. Listen to Galatians 3, verses 22 and 23. But the scriptures has confined all under sin that the, prop, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You have to listen to that. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Scripture here is a euphemism for God. But scripture comes from God. Okay? And saying, God has confined all men to sin that they may only be accepted by faith in Christ. He has done it. Listen to this. If you think that was an aberration, listen to this. Romans 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. (laughs) Men have been made sinful, that is unrighteous, before God that he may stop them from boasting. Confined all of them under sin. So the apostle will say, Therefore by the deeds of the law, will no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the Lord makes sure that you acquire that sinful nature, and then he brings that law to tell you that you're a sinner. So the, the law is not making you a sinner. The law is there For you to discover that I am a sinner. It's for your discovery. Those are your lenses. 
Because I knew glasses. Or now I can see clearly. So what do we see? We see that God has confined all to sin to make all men guilty so that no man would come and bust before him. So sin takes away all moral ability from men so that their standing is only through the righteousness that God gives. Sin takes away all your ability to do anything good so that when you stand before God, it's only for one reason, the righteousness that he himself has given you through Christ. Unless someone thinks I'm making things up, Romans 3, verses 21, 22 to 26. Listen to this. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned. You see, the effect of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the purpose of sin. But listen now, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And this is powerful. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. This was to also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. So sin has shut up all men for the reason that God may demonstrate his righteousness. That's the purpose. If we look at sin outside the glory of Christ, you will always be saying a lot of nonsense. Sin is revealed in the context of Christ that Christ may be exalted in the redemption of his people. So all men have been shut up to sin by God's doing that he may demonstrate his righteousness through the redemption that is in Christ. And if all men have been shut up, if all men have been shut up, that only leaves them with one option. If man has been shut up completely, all of them, you can't have grandma saying, oh, that's my grandson or granddaughter. Or because grandma is in, she's going to open a way for me. It doesn't work like that. Both grandma and grandkids have been shut up under sin. So that if any one of them has to be saved, it's only by grace. If any one of them has to be saved, it's only by mercy. That Christ may display you as a vessel of honor. A vessel of mercy. That's the language of Romans 9. And that's the gospel that we are preaching. Because he has shut up all men, that leaves God with one option to accept sinners, to justify them freely. Because if you are shut up to sin, you can only be justified freely. You can only be justified freely. But if you are justified freely, you are free. 
There's nothing else to add to it. If you are justified freely, then you are so free. Him who the Son of Man sets free is free indeed. And this is why talking about having a free will in the context of salvation and, and sin is useless. It's nonsense. And this is the reason why God demands from men that which he alone can provide. His righteousness. Sinful men are made responsible for their sins even though they are not able to do better. And this seemed right in God's sight. Romans 11.36 For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. It's in the Bible. It's in there. It's in the Bible. So, having an understanding that if God requires us, whatever God requires us of us, he has to provide, we have also to understand that repentance is a gift. God requires all men and commands all men everywhere to repent. That's the language of Acts 17.30. He commands all men everywhere to repent. This is a universal command. And by this command, a lot of people think that they can do it. They think they can just repent by themselves. Repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is a gift from God because it's part of the righteousness of God in Christ. Acts eleven eighteen says, God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2.25, they are in trouble. They have been doing all kinds of crazy things around the tabernacle. And the Lord desires to kill them. Even though they have been warned, Eli's sons don't repent. Eli's sons can't repent. Even though the Lord has told Eli, that his sons are doing bad things. Eli comes to his sons and says, Sons, what I hear from Israel is not good. The things that you are doing are not good. They are sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the temple, of, of the tabernacle. And here the word of the Lord in First Samuel 2.25. Eli says, If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. They did not listen to the voice of their father. What does that say? They, did, they were not granted repentance. Because if the Lord had granted them repentance, they surely would have repented. But the Lord desired 
to kill them. So what the Lord has done for us in Christ is, if you believe in Christ Jesus, the Lord has granted you repentance because he does not desire to kill you. He does not desire to kill you. So then we see that God's sovereignty is real sovereignty, whereby he moves people to do what, they, what he wants them to do, but according to their nature, and yet still hold them accountable. And that is what we are going to see taught and illustrated in Isaiah 10. That's going to be our main text. And that was just introduction. Isaiah 10, verse 1. It's going to be a lot of reading. But it's important that we read these things because this knowledge is assumed. And people who stand on their hind legs, on their hind legs, just arguing and arguing, but without the knowledge of the scriptures. Let's hear how the Lord teaches his sovereignty and human responsibility in his book. Isaiah 10, 123. Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions. So as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights, so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the captives or fall among the slain. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn, turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. Verse 5, War to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plant so in its heart. But rather its purpose is to destroy and to cut off many nations. For it says, are not my princes or kings? Is not Kauno like Kemish, or Hamath like Apad, or Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? Verse 12. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. For he has said, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, I did this. For I have understanding and I removed the boundaries of the peoples and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants. And my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth. And there was not one that flapped its wing or opened its beak or chirped. Is the ex, verse 15, to bust itself over the one who chops with it, is the sword to exalt itself over the one who wields it? That would be like a club wielding who lifts it, or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, who sent a wasting disease among his stout warriors and under his glory, 
a fire will be kindled like a burning flame, and the light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a single day, and he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away, and the, and the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. Now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. The nation of Assyria. Assyria was a very powerful nation. was a very powerful nation of the ancient world. It was founded, maybe its beginnings were around 2400 BC. And ended maybe sometime around 612 BC. That's a long time. Its capital city was none other than the great city, Nineveh. That's the city that Jonah the prophet was sent to preach the message of repentance. It was the message of repentance, and we hear from the book of Jonah that the whole nation repented. There was a revival. The Lord granted repentance to the whole nation for what reason? Because he intended to use Assyria as an instrument to punish his people. That's the God of the Bible. And he hasn't stopped and he's still doing it. He's still punishing nations. He's still moving nations around. But you have to know a little bit about Assyria. Assyria is, if you look at the modern day geography, it's going to be bordered by four nations. Iran, Syria, Turkey. <laughs> Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey. So the borders of those are what encompasses the old Syria. I mean Assyria. Okay. So what was so special about Assyria? Assyria was special in that it was the most ruthless nation ever recorded. It was a ruthless nation. It was a ruthless nation and God shows up on the scene and he says, I am the one who has raised it up. And I'm the one who is granting it all this victory. I am the one who is using it as a rod, forbidding the nations of the world into conformity. Here's a commentary on Assyria's barbarism. There's a commentary on the minor prophets by a guy called Farah. This is what he says. Just a summary. Uh, the Assyrian Empire was known for its cruelty. Judged from the vaunting inscriptions of a kings, no more power, useless, more savage, more terrible, ever cast its gigantic shadow on the page of history as it passed on the way to ruin. The kings of Assyria tormented the miserable world. They exiled to record how space failed for corpses, how unsparing a destroyer is their goddess Ishtar. 
how they flung away the bodies of soldiers like so much clay, how they made pyramids of human heads, how they burned cities, how they filled populous lands with death and devastation, how they reddened broad deserts with carnage of warriors, how they scattered whole countries with the corpses of their defenders as with chaff, how they impaled heaps of men on stakes and strewed the mountains and choked rivers with dead bones, how they cut off the hands of kings and nailed them on the walls and left their bodies to rot with bears and dogs on the entrance gates of cities, how they employed nations of captives in making brick in fetters, how they cut down warriors like weeds or smote them like wild beasts in the forest and covered pillars with the flayed skins of rival monarchs. And if you go and study more, you hear things that Assyrian, Assyrian, the Assyrian army did that you can't even read. They were notorious. But that's okay. When we look at them as sinners, we say, of course, they are sinners. They can do that. But to hear a holy and righteous God come and say, guess what? I am the one who is holding them by my hand. I am the one who is raising them for the punishment of my people, Israel. Then we have to rearrange our thinking about the God that we are talking about. We have to rearrange our thinking. Let, let's get in there and get some theology out of it. Let's go in there. Israel is in sin. Israel's sin has, in, has been enumerated there. They are enacting evil policies and just laws and just decisions, depriving the needy of justice, robbing the poor of their rights, making a spoil of the widows, and plundering the orphans. And the Lord says, you have failed the leaders of Israel to protect my weak and vulnerable people. The Lord cares for the weak and the vulnerable people. Yes, he does. He raised a nation to punish Israel for it. For this reason, God says, I am coming to punish you, and this is how I'm going to deliver the judgment on you. But before we get there, I'm going to give you more theology to exactly what is happening behind the scenes. War to Assyria, the rod of my anger. And the stuff in whose hands is my indignation. God says, I am a sovereign of Assyria and her gods. And says, Assyria is a rod and stuff in his hand and has always been an instrument in his hands. So why is there evil in the world? Because the Lord has decreed it to be there that he may use it for his glory. So the Lord claims that it is he who sends Assyria to attack his people. He says, I have commissioned it against my people to seize plunder and trample them down. Now, the sovereignty understanding of a lot of people would say, oh, God just merely directs things. No, the Lord does not just direct things. He determines and then directs. Men are only working from the template that God himself has set. He determines and he directs 
man to execute exactly what he has determined to be done. God stirs the whole nation to war. The Lord stirs the whole nation to war, even if the nation has to go to war through some act of Congress and through some ballot votes that have to be cast. The Lord says, I am sovereign over every ballot that has to be cast. And if I want you to go to war, I'm going to have the number of votes that I need to make sure that I send you to war to do exactly what I need you to do. That's the theology of the Bible. And the Lord says, yet it does not so intend, in verse 7, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather its purpose is to destroy and to cut off many nations. Assyria does not rise up for God's glory. Assyria or any other nation in the history of nations does not rise up to say, now we are going to plunder Israel because we are serving Yahweh. There's not a single nation even in our day that goes to war for the name of Christ. They go to war for their own purposes. So the Lord here is making a distinction of the motivation. He says the Assyrians are going to war for their imperialistic ends. They want to just gather the nations to themselves, gather the wealth and everything to themselves. But he says every little thing that they're doing is by my doing. And another important thing that you may miss is God did not look around the nations to see which nation was the, most, was the most ruthless. He did not look around the nations and say, oh, uh, can I take Ethiopia or Egypt? Or maybe the Assyrians. Let me see. The Assyrians may have stronger guys in their army. Maybe I'll use them. No. The Lord says, I raised this nation for this very purpose. As he raised Pharaoh. I raised you for this very purpose, that my name may be glorified in you. So all these nations are being raised. And what does it mean to be raised by God? God is making sure that in the nation of Assyria, there are enough women who are childbearing who can give birth to children. And not only that, he is making sure that they have enough boys to go to war. He's making sure that he provides them with all the food, with all the wisdom to make all the equipment and devise all the military strategies. He is making sure that they have all of that. He's making sure that they don't get sick at all. And he makes sure that every one of their opponents is defeated. He is making sure of all of that. But listen, what uh, uh, Job says in 12.23, he that's God, makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He guides them. But Assyria, that's us. Whatever Assyria says, that's you and me. And listen to the boasting of Assyria personified in verse 8. For he says, are not my princes or kings is not Kauno like Kachemish. Or a math like Apad or Samaria like Damascus. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, 
whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, I shall not, shall I not do to Jerusalem and the images just as I have done to Samaria and their idols. What is he saying? Not all princes were kings. The princes were not kings. But in the boasting of Assyria, it says, we are so above all the nations that even our princes are above all the kings of the other nations. That's what he's saying. Assyria has conquered nations that had more idols and gods than Israel. You see, this is the theology of paganism. Assyria comes and says, we have conquered other nations that had more idols than we have ever seen in Israel. So, they do their math and say, okay, we conquered these nations that had more idols, and we have been to Israel. There are not that many idols there, so we're just going to make a route. What they don't realize is Israel does not have as many idols as other nations because Israel belongs to Yahweh. That's the reason. And this is the reason why Assyria is going to get in trouble. Okay, So they're thinking that they're going to be sweeping through Israel just like that. But listen to what the Lord says. He takes the responsibility for Assyria's actions. God takes responsibility for Assyria's wicked actions. Just in case someone would listen to this. I don't know when. God takes responsibility for Assyria's wicked actions. Verse 12. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. The Lord says, when I have completed my work on Mount Zion, this is my work. This is not Assyria's work. I am the one who is doing this. And when I am done with the work of punishing my people, I'm going to deal with Assyria for doing what I moved it to do. That's sovereignty. God will punish you for doing a sin that he moved you to do. The Lord says, when Assyria gets done destroying and capturing my people, my work is completed. But the story does not end there. God makes Assyria responsible for something that he did through them. Now, this theology, even the so-called reformed people, they stumble at this theology. They stumble at this theology and when it comes to this, they want to emphasize more human responsibility that they may take away and clean up God. God does not need to be cleaned up. He is holy and righteous. And yet he does these things. Listen. God does not forgive or excuse them. Rather, he punishes and destroys Assyria, as was prophesied in the book of Nahum. And we see this pattern in many other places in the Bible, like Luke 22, 22. Here, 
the Lord Jesus Christ saying, And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. The Son of Man. He's talking about himself. He goes to the cross as has been determined by who? By God. By listen. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Christ has to go on the cross by the way that God has determined. Through what? Through the sin of Judas. So Judas has to be kept. Judas has to be available. Judas has to be healthy. Judas' parents cannot die unless Judas is born. Judas' grandparents cannot die until Judas' parents are born. Because the Lord has determined to use Judas to accomplish his work on the cross. In Acts 4, 27, 28, Apostle Peter, with that apology, says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So Herod and Pilate, everything that they were doing, Herod had to be there. God had to make sure that a Herod was there when Christ was there. He had to make sure that a Pilate was there when Christ was there. And yet he says, this was God's doing. God predetermined for all this to be done. I mean, you, you, people read statements, but they don't take time to slow down and think about what is being said. But when you look at the procession, everything that is happening around the death of Christ, around his crucifixion, every little detail of that God is saying, I am the one who is doing it. The Lord Jesus Christ even said that of Mary about her anointing oil. She said of her, I've been anointed by her oil. This is not a direct translation, just a paraphrase. For he kept, for she kept this oil for me. Mary was a prostitute. She kept the oil for Jesus. Mary was not keeping the oil for Jesus. Mary was keeping the oil for that was very expensive perfume. Remember, Judas had some words about that. Okay? Mary was keeping the expensive perfume for a rainy day. That was a 401k. Social security. But the Lord in his sovereignty says, no, 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 Mary. I am the one who was keeping that oil and giving you the oil for this very purpose. And when we approach the God of the Bible and we approach our lives with that understanding of God's sovereignty, I'm telling you, your eyes will start to see much more than you are seeing. You are then able to interpret everything that is around you because you become a spiritual man or woman. Okay. So Assyria says, by the power of my hand and by my wisdom, 
I did this. For I have understanding, and I removed the boundaries of the peoples, and plundered their treasures. And like a mighty man, I brought down their inhabitants, and my hand reached to the riches of the peoples like a nest. And as one gathers abandoned eggs, I gathered all the earth, and there was not one that flapped its wing, or opened its beak, or chapped. Now this is Assyria. Assyria comes and claims responsibility for everything that it's doing. And he says, by my free will, this is Assyria. Okay, this is what free will will do for you. By my power, that's my free will, by my wisdom, my understanding, this is, these are all claims of free will. And, and, and this is man's attitude towards sin. We think we have power, we think we have wisdom and understanding, and God makes us responsible for that. And ultimately, Assyria was being punished for the wrong motives in doing the right thing. Because God already determined to punish Israel. But it's the motivation. So even you yourself, there may be things that you may do that are right, that may bring a good outcome. But if your motivation is wrong, even though it may be the Lord working behind the scenes, he's going to make you responsible for it. So your motive has to be right in everything, as much as it depends on you. So we are responsible for all our sinful actions, and we need to seek forgiveness and repentance. And none in their right mind could ever say, oh, I'm doing all the things that I did, or the sin that I've committed, I did it because it's the Lord who did it through me. That's not the theology. That's not the theology. The theology is you are responsible for your sin and God makes you accountable. But there's a lot of good theology about that that we share as we draw to the close. So Assyria says with pomp, I removed the boundaries of the nations and plundered their treasures. As Assyria does this, it says it reached the riches of the people's like a nest, with not even a bird to fight back. It was to them like one who gathers abandoned eggs. There's not even anybody who is fighting back. That's how easy it was. Like, I'm just gathering abandoned eggs. This is how much victory the Lord was giving to the nation of Assyria. Okay? So, God corrects Assyria's theology and says, no, no, Assyria, not that fast. Is the ex, verse 15, to boss itself over the one who chops with it. Is the sword to exalt itself over the one who wields it. That will be like a club wounding those who lift it. Or like a rod lifting him who is not wood. Assyria is an ex. It's an instrument. But God portrays it uh, as an instrument that belongs to him. And as an ex... As an ex, what is he saying? An ex cannot move. Though it's useful, the ex is only useful when someone holds it. They wield the ex and then they chop with it. So he says, even you at your level, you are nothing. Without me, you are nothing. You can't even move until I move you. 
And when I move you, I'm moving you to accomplish my purpose. So every time that you move, the Lord is moving you. Left to yourself, you shall remain an X. You can't do anything. The Lord says, I am the one who has to move you to do anything. And Assyria, you are an X in my hands. But a different kind of X. You are an X that has moral responsibility. Even though you are bound by sin, I still use you. The Lord says, I am going to destroy the nation of Assyria. The Lord says in verse 16, Therefore, the Lord, the God of hosts, will send a western disease among his stout warriors, and under his glory a fire will be kindled like a burning flame. The survivors will be killed by an invisible army of viruses and bacteria. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to kill the army of Assyria as majestic as it was in number and artillery, the Lord says, I am going to destroy you with something invisible. I'm not even going to raise an army for you right now. I am going to destroy you with something invisible. Okay? So do you want to know the invisible thing? The bacteria, the viruses, HIV, AIDS, all the Ebola viruses, all these things that keep... All those things come from the hand of the Lord. They are his instruments. They do the Lord's bidding. They do the Lord's bidding because they are raised specifically for that. So what is the point? The point is that scriptures declare without apology that our God is a very sovereign God over all the affairs of men, the nations, and all creation. The servant of God does not wait and see what men will do. Rather, it establishes what men do and yet makes us responsible for the sinful things that we do. And it is our moral responsibility as defined by God for us that is the basis for our judgment. God is going to judge the nations. He is going to judge the peoples of the nations. And yet not one of them is going to say, Oh Lord, excuse me, you are the sovereign one. You could have prevented me from sinning. It's not going to happen. We are morally responsible for our sins. And yet it's very clear that we have no ability to repent from our sin by our own selves. Repentance and faith has to be granted in Christ or else we will die in our sins and our free will. We are responsible for our sins even though the Lord is sovereign over them. But for those in Christ, we are the remnant. For those in Christ, we are the remnant that is saved by grace, whose moral responsibility has been discharged and lifted by the perfect obedience of Christ. When Jesus Christ took human flesh, it was so that he would take up our position and room as our surety and substitute. So that Apostle Paul would say 
For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So as in the case of Israel, that was in captivity. To which the Lord said, a remnant will return. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. You are the remnant that has returned. You are the remnant that the Lord has preserved. You are the remnant that was also guilty, just as Israel was guilty. And the Lord did not destroy all the guilty people of the nation of Israel. The Lord has not destroyed you that he may demonstrate his grace and mercy and love towards you. We were in captivity to the devil. That's what Assyria was typifying. Assyria is a type of the devil. But we have escaped God's righteous judgment only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we are the remnant according to the election of grace. According to the election of grace and Berean sovereign grace, this is why we are a sovereign grace church. We are a sovereign grace church because we have been saved by the grace of God. He didn't have to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne this afternoon. Lord, we praise you, for you are the sovereign of the universe. You are the sovereign in the purpose and plan of salvation. And your purpose was your glory and the glory of Christ. That your people could only come before you with the righteousness that you alone has given in Christ. And that righteousness you have given us by faith in him who was faithful and is faithful to you. Lord, we thank you that we have been taught that you are the sovereign and yet we are responsible for our sins. We are responsible for our many sins that are ever before us. Lord, may you deliver us from our sins. May you deliver us, Lord, May you make us holy and blameless on that day. Lord, may you deliver us from the snare of the evil one. Lord, may you deliver us from ourselves. May we not look to ourselves for our salvation. May we look to the holy hill, to Mount Zion, that we may see the completed work of Christ and look to him who is our salvation, the horn of our salvation. Jesus Christ the Lord, may you be with your people this day. May you gather them in their ways as they go out during the week. Remind them of yourself. Remind them of the beauty of the gospel. Remind them of the beauty of Christ himself and the beauty of the hope, of the secure hope that you have given them in him. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.